Welcome to the Super Exploitation and Resistance podcast, powered by Common Frontiers and allies in the Canadian labor movement. This podcast brings the voices of labor leaders, activists, organizers, and social movements to a North American audience. We share the perspectives of people on the front lines of social struggle and change in Latin America. I'm your host, Jose Luis Granado Ceja, a Mexican freelance journalist based in Mexico City with a decade of experience supporting social transformations and revolutionary struggles in Latin America, both through my work and my activism. Raul Burbano, a Colombian organizer in Toronto and the program director for Common Frontiers, is our producer. You may be asking yourself, what is super exploitation? And why did we include it in the name of the podcast? One goal of the podcast is to highlight the problems facing working class people throughout the hemisphere and the interconnectedness of those struggles. The ruling class exploiting you in Canada is also exploiting the campesinos and workers of Latin America. We have a common enemy, but that enemy exploits us differently. Here in the global south, workers are systematically paid below the value of their labor power. As such, Latin America is not underdeveloped because of an inherent backwardness but rather because of this mechanism that capitalists employ to maximize the extraction of surplus value and accumulate capital. Understanding superexploitation is crucial to understanding the region, and it's the topic of today's podcast, imperialism. Each episode will tackle the big issues facing Latin America by talking to people directly involved in the struggle and looking how contemporary events illustrate these issues. Don't worry if you've never engaged with the question of imperialism. I promise you that by the end of the show, you'll have a good idea of how it operates in Latin America. Specifically, we'll take a look at how U.S. and Canadian imperialism exerts its power and influence over Latin America, and we'll take a look at the state of the anti-imperialist struggle today. After all, this is a show about resistance as well. On today's program, we'll hear from former Bolivian Vice President Álvaro García Linera, who spoke with us during his exile in Mexico after the 2019 coup in Bolivia. We'll also speak with Canadian professor Tyler Shipley, author of Canada in the World, Settler Capitalism and the Colonial Imagination, as well as Laura Nieto, a student in Latin American Studies at the National Autonomous University of Mexico and a member of the Anti-Imperialist Coordinating Group in Solidarity with Latin America and the Caribbean. But first, a look at the situation in Haiti with Raúl Burbano. Thank you, Jose Luis. I'm delighted to be part of this exciting podcast, and I'm looking forward to sharing alternative ideas and bringing them to the forefront of our monthly discussions. Once again, popular protests in Haiti are calling for the resignation of Jovenel Moïse as he enters his second year of rule by decree. Moïse claims to another year in power has been rejected by most Haitians as it violates all legal and constitutional norms. Moïse has led a nationwide crackdown on protests, arrested opposition figures, and even dismissed three Supreme Court justices. Yet, the Biden administration continues to throw its full support behind Moïse. Moïse was elected in 2015 in what many called fraudulent elections. He has faced massive anti-corruption and anti-IMF protests since mid-2018. In a recent presidential decree, he has criminalized peaceful protesters by expanding the definition of terrorism to include blockades. In the worst massacre in over a decade, La Saline Massacre of 2018, the United Nations confirmed the Haitian government's culpability in that massacre when they documented the murder of 71 civilians and the brutalizing of women and children by gangs. Moïse also enjoys the full support of Canada. 
The Canadian government has long interfered in Haiti's domestic affairs and supports the Maurice government by funding and training a police force that has violently repressed anti-Maurice protests. The Canadian ambassador in Haiti has repeatedly attended police functions all the while refusing to criticize the repression of protests. On January 18th, Ambassador Stuart Savage met the controversial new head of police, Leon Charles, to discuss strengthening the capacity of police of all things. Canada and the U.S. administration continue to provide important political support to the government via the so-called core group. This is a group of foreign ambassadors in Port-au-Prince who support the government diplomatically at every turn. On February 12th, Foreign Minister Mark Garneau spoke with his Haitian counterpart, Claude Joseph. They announced plans for uh, both countries to co-host a forthcoming conference. Yet the statement made no mention, however, of the difficult economic situation in the country, the anti-democratic actions of the government, or the criminalization of protests. The U.S. and Canada claim to be beacons of freedom and democracy, yet Haiti presents another example of how democracy is perverted in order to meet or support the needs of imperialist countries. But the people of Haiti are not alone, and there is a large growing chorus of voices around the world calling for Moise to relinquish power. In Canada, numerous Haitian civil society groups, solidarity groups have called for the Canadian government to end its support for Moise politically and economically. The Canadian Foreign Policy Institute is another group calling for the Canadian government to end its support for the repressive and corrupt dictatorship in Haiti. They are circulating a letter signed by more than 100 academics, activists, and artists. Signatories of that letter include former UN Ambassador Stephen Lewis, broadcaster David Suzuki, author Naomi Klein, Professor Noam Chomsky, many more important individuals. The petition can be found on the Canadian Dimensions website. Few things illustrate the challenge of politicians and social movements to transform the situation in Latin America than the repeated efforts by imperialism to oust leaders that Washington and Ottawa deem a threat to their interests. Hugo Chavez in 2002, Mel Zelaya in 2009, Aristide in 2004, the list goes on. The most recent example was the military coup against Evo Morales in 2019. Bolivia held elections on October 20th, 2019 to elect lawmakers as well as the president and vice president. Evo Morales, the country's first indigenous president, was seeking re-election, and after a long night of counting, managed to narrowly avoid a runoff with the second-place finisher, Carlos Mesa. Sensing an opportunity, the country's opposition, with the help of the Organization of American States, spread the false narrative that the election was fraudulent. On November 10th, 2019, after weeks of increasingly violent protests, wanton attacks on supporters of the Morales government, and the decision by some of the country's security forces to abandon their post, the far-right political forces in Bolivia managed to oust the president from power with the help of the military. The role of the U.S. via the OAS was crucial. Although many had believed that the era of naked power grabs by the political opposition via the military had perhaps passed, the 2019 Bolivian coup showed that not only was imperialism and its local elites willing to attempt a coup, but that the coup effort would succeed in ousting a democratically elected government. Former Bolivian Vice President Álvaro García Linera, who himself was forced to abandon the country in a hurry and flee together with Morales to Mexico, tells us why the coup was able to succeed. Ten years ago, it would have unthinkable, not a coup attempt, but rather the triumph of a coup in Latin America. As a matter of fact, 
in the year 2008, they tried to carry out a coup in Bolivia with the aid of the U.S. Embassy. We have uprisings in the cities, the takeover of institutions, the killing of social movement leaders. But in that instance, first, there was a great social mobilization, and international, there were greater continental cohesion through UNASUR. What UNASUR did? Michelle Bachelet was in charge, and she mobilized within hours and rejected the coup attempt and exert pressure through delegations, statements, and presidential meetings that said they would not recognize a de facto government that broke with constitutional order. And so, that is one element that the coup will not be able to count on. It will have been very, very adverse international context. Something that did not happen in the last coup, where we have a different situation with a divided Latin America, where some governments came out quickly against the coup and others came out to celebrate it, embrace it, and recognize the coup plotters with all the blood in their hands. The role played by Mexico under the leadership of President Andrés Manuel López Obrador cannot be overstated. It was a Mexican plane that literally flew to Bolivia to rescue Morales and Garcia Linera, and they nearly did not make it out of there alive. This would not be the only instance of López Obrador extending his hand in solidarity with other progressive leaders. He had previously refused to recognize Juan Guaidó as president of Venezuela when he attempted to seize power away from Nicolás Maduro. He would also later offer asylum to key figures from the Rafael Correa administration in Ecuador, who were suffering from political persecution by the Lenin Moreno regime. Yet despite taking these principled positions, which always resulted in harsh criticism domestically, López Obrador never uses anti-imperialist language. Instead, he talks about abiding by the Mexican constitution, which calls for non-intervention in other countries' affairs. But for all intents and purposes, the AMLO government, as he is commonly known, is an anti-imperialist government. I asked García Linera if this distinction matters. The results are the same, but the means are different, and there is no reason to be surprised about that. If you pay attention to the progressive governments of Latin America during the period of the closest unity, they did not have a uniform language. Lula's language referred to an international context that has always been quite different than, for instance, Chavez or Evo Morales' language. This is due to different conditions of the mechanism of external relations of each country. The six or seven economy of the world, Brazil, have a different relation with United States than Bolivia. We are the 102nd economy of the world for sure, and the personal trajectories have been quite different. Lula is a labor leader. Anivo is a peasant leader persecuted and threatened by the DIA, including suffering attacks of his life and during the election campaign in 2003. The North American ambassadors say openly that people should not vote for Evo, that he is the Taliban of the Indian world. They did not say something like that about Lula in his time. They were more careful with him. So it depends on the different ways of each country and how they relate to the world and on their different trajectories. That modulate these speeches. They have always been different. They have never been an homogeneity in terms of anti-imperialist speeches. 
It is the same case for Mexico. Mexico is the main economy partner of the United States. Their economies are completely intertwined. The president's trajectories are quite different. So it is not possible to expect a common language. And it is good to not have a common language. What we do have is a set of basic principles. And this is what we have seen. The rejection of intervention is a principle. And with just that, the continent will be different. Let us not consider the same gestures, the same speeches, but the same principles. Two or three basic principles, individuals and universals. The world will be quite different, and Latin America will be quite different. From this point forward, we do not know how the correlation of forces at the continental level are going to change. Today, we live a simultaneous coexistence, the contemporary reality of progressive wave and the conservative wave simultaneously, and as a type of catastrophic tie where the horizon for the next decade is being redefined, and it is not going to be resolved fast. It is going to take time. It is going to be a time of convulsion and with the modification of borders of social struggles, a very flexible or very elastic situation. But the idea will be that more countries, aside from the language they use, will hold firmly to two or three basic principles that are universal and that comes from the Treaty of Westphalia from the year 1700. Each country, one state. No intervention in the internal affairs of other state. We will already have a quite different world. So, hopefully, independently of how their struggles go, this could grow. Argentine President Alberto Fernandez and Mexico's López Obrador met in Mexico City this past February. The closeness of these two leaders, who preside over the two largest economies in Latin America, say for Brazil, is leading to discussion about the emergence of a new progressive bloc, the Mexico-Buenos Aires axis, one that is reminiscent of the type of initiative seen during the height of the pink wave of governments in the region. During that period, important bodies such as UNASUR and CELAC were created to break away from U.S. hegemony and its Ministry of Colonies, otherwise known as the OAS. So threatening to U.S. interests were these regional bodies that right-wing governments in the region wasted no time trying to destroy them once the balance of forces had changed in Latin America. But a wave of victories by leftists in places such as Mexico, Argentina, and Bolivia is spurring hope that these groups can be rebuilt. But will it be enough? What was the crime of UNASUR and CELAC for the United States? being in a space that belonged to us, where Latin Americans talk among Latin Americans, what has been viewed almost as an affront when it's simple and normal relation, it should be normal that neighbors of one region come together to talk between themselves. The richest countries meet, and no one sees this as an affront. Europeans meet, and no one sees it as an affront. Why can't we, Latin America, meet among ourselves to talk about Latin America without even attacking anyone? That was an affront to a government that thought 
that this Latin American country should be paying homage and asking permission to raise their hands to speak. A basic fact of dignity was an offense, and I have been torpedoed by those leaders who have this sort of slave mentality. They accept themselves to be and desire to be a slave, because neither Silak nor Unasur did anything to the United States. They simply meet to speak and assist. Comrades who, at the very last, share a language and a geographic region. They have destroyed Unasur, they have tried to destroy Selak. And what of the Latin Americanistic attitude of Mexico? The seven economies in the world, particularly important, and as a result with an important influence on the planet, Mexico gives a new dimension to the rescue of Silac, and it's a good step forward, but I'm not sure it will be enough. I am not sure if the balance of forces is still favorable enough to a Latin Americanistic or a Latin Central or South American bloc, because there are two governments on the continent that have a strong influence because of the size of their economy, Mexico and Brazil. And as a matter of fact, Mexico's position of reviving and reinvigorating CELAC have found acceptance among various governments. But I'm unsure if the balance of forces will allow for that initiative to develop its own dynamic. I'm not sure. I hope that it will. Either more progressive governments are elected or Brazil accept this initiative. Much of what happens on the continent in terms of international position depend on those two economies, Mexico and Brazil. Argentina is also a particularly important economy, of course, but it has been hit hard, extremely hard. It helps a lot that the effort to revitalize UNASUR move along the Mexico-Argentina axis, one that crosses the whole continent. It is a strong possibility, but I'm not sure it will be strong enough. We are once again joined by Raúl Burbano, who recently traveled to Venezuela as part of an election observation mission in the country's recent legislative elections. Raúl fills us in. Yes, I have been observing elections in Venezuela for about a decade now, so I have a lot of experience with the electoral process in the country. And most recently, I was there in December 6th for the parliamentary elections where we were able to meet with a diverse sector of civil society. But before I get into that, let me just mention a little bit about the context with regards to the sanctions and how the situation in the country is. Since the election of Hugo Chavez in 1999, Venezuela has been besieged politically, economically, and financially by the U.S. and Canadian governments. In Canada, this imperialist attitude towards Venezuela was on full display in the recent Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs and International Development Briefing Session, which was analyzing the current situation in Venezuela. The committee heard from an Assistant Deputy Minister of America's Michael Grant. He spoke at length of the alleged illegitimate nature of the recent parliamentary elections that took place on December 6, 2020. I was in Venezuela as an elections observer, along with others from Coping Delegation. We detailed in our report back from the elections, numerous meetings with members of the opposition, including 
major political parties and their leaders who participated in the elections. They spoke to us of the importance of the electoral process as the only way forward for peace in Venezuela. Why does Canada continue to follow the same failed strategy? Many experts feel it's because of the Canadian government's economic interest in mining, oil and gas, and Canadian capital's interest in securing access to these resources. The mainstream media narrative has been created to justify the illegal and unilateral coercive sanctions against Venezuela that are crippling the economy and killing people causing deaths. A two-week visit to Venezuela in early February of this year by the UN Special Rapporteur on Unilateral Coercive Measures and Human Rights, Alana Duhon, outlined some key shocking details of the impact sanctions are having on the economy and on human rights in the country. The UN Special Rapporteur blasted these devastating and illegal sanctions against Venezuela, calling on them to be lifting. Ending the sanctions against Venezuela has been the main call from academics, the labor movement, and civil society organizations globally. To counter the impacts of sanctions and isolation, the Venezuelan labor movement has launched an anti-imperialist working class platform. The platform seeks to revive the anti-imperialist struggles of workers against the neoliberal projects of globalization, as well as the right to self-determination and the respect for sovereignty. In Canada, there has also been a strong movement to hold the Canadian government accountable for its impact to the sovereignty in Venezuela. The Canadian labor movement has been playing a progressive role when it comes to Venezuela. In a recent open letter to the Canadian government, members of the labor movement, the ecumenical organizations, and other solidarity groups are calling for the government of Canada to end the sanctions against Venezuela and to abstain from following the United States policy of regime change and intervention in the sovereign affairs of Venezuela. It's critical that international solidarity support the working people in Venezuela against their struggle against imperialism and respect for sovereignty. A esta hora, puedo decirlo a esta hora. Empieza un nuevo ciclo en la historia de Venezuela. Empieza una nueva etapa. The coup in Bolivia happened with Donald Trump in the White House. With the arrival of Joe Biden, a Democrat, to the U.S. presidency, there is an expectation in some quarters that things will change. But if there's one thing that Republicans and Democrats have in common, it is foreign policy and support for regime change efforts. It was the Obama administration, where Biden served as vice president, that allowed the 2009 coup against Mel Zelaya in Honduras to be consummated. It was Obama who sanctioned the parliamentary coups against Dilma Rousseff in Brazil and Fernando Lugo in Paraguay. So do Democrats really represent a change when it comes to coups in Latin America? To find out, I spoke with Laura Nieto, a student in Latin American studies at the National Autonomous University of Mexico and a member of the Anti-Imperialist Coordinating Group in solidarity with Latin America and the Caribbean an organization based in Mexico that works to confront imperialism and was born in the wake of the 2019 coup in Bolivia. Efectivamente, tanto el Partido Demócrata como el Republicano en Estados Unidos forman parte de la de la misma estrategia política imperialista. Indeed, both the Democratic and Republican parties in the United States are part of the same imperialist political strategy that has prevailed for many years, or more accurately, for centuries. We could say on the part of the United States towards Latin America and to other parts of the world. From my perspective, from my point of view, I think both parties, effectively, if we analyze Trump and Biden, well, in the end, neither of those two parties are good for Latin America as such. Because in reality, Latin America is a region that becomes strategic for a nation like the United States when it comes to resources, manpower, and labor. And that is, in the end, 
creates this situation where we always have this empire hanging over our region and that the dispossession of our natural resources is always promoted. And obviously, the United States promotes a specific foreign policy toward governments in the region that ends up without any autonomy at all. Much of the time, and well always, or at least most of the time, regional governments submitting to this policy, which is always reproducing dependency with the aim of capital accumulation. From my perspective and from my collective, if we believe that we could not say that there is a great difference between one party and the other, because as you have seen in both administrations, we have seen coup d'etats backed by the two different parties. We have seen dispossession. We have seen a lot of violence towards our region. That danger of meddling is that it is always latent with the United States and that not so much, I think, because the Democratic Party is such, but because of what emerges as a result of the globalization of capital. In other words, the fact that right now we are facing a problem as big as climate change or the large challenge of migration, which in many instances is also the result of climate change. But there are also many displaced by violence, by drug trafficking, the human displacement that exists in Latin America and also in Africa. I believe that all those factors, of course, make so that a nation like the United States, which is based on the exploitation of other nations, of course they are going to have to promote certain policies that try to solve their respective problems which are emerging, for instance big oil, the issue that oil extraction has peaked. The energy issue is a very serious issue, so the effort of the United States to control energy policy seems to me a factor that is obviously going to lead the United States to seek to interfere more in our countries in order to extract other natural resources. So independently of what Biden and Trump said on the campaign trail about what they would do in terms of foreign policy, what we see are the material realities. It is this material reality that tells us that a nation like the United States, which like other capitalist nations is based on the accumulation of capital, but in this case also is imperialist and is based greatly on the dispossession of natural resources and the over-exploitation of labor. Well, of course, the contradictions of capital are going to become greater. And as a result of that, there will be more interference by the United States in our Latin American region. Because otherwise, its mode of production, its model, could not persist. That is why our countries, why Latin America and the Caribbean, are dependent countries in that sense. Because we are located within an international division of labor, where we have a nation like the United States on top. And so I believe that, regardless of whether we're talking about Trump or Biden, these things will worsen. Because the situation at a global scale is worsening. Because now the accumulation of capital, and especially since the onset of the COVID-19 crisis, is in crisis. Because of course, there is a global economic crisis that tends to be solved through the over-exploitation of nations on the periphery, as our countries are. Eh, como hemos visto históricamente, suele resolverse a partir de la sobreexplotación de las naciones periféricas como son las nuestras. Dispossession. That word certainly sums it up. Capitalism is predicated on the ability of the forces of capital to dispossess. As long as capitalism is the mode of production, as our guest said, it won't matter who's in the White House. 
But political struggle isn't just about economics. It's about power. And where there's people, there's movements. And where there's movements, there's power. La historia reciente nos está diciendo que la derecha se puede organizar y lo puede hacer muy bien. ¿no? Recent history is showing us that the right wing can organize and can do it quite well, and that it is not only because they can organize very well, but also because, in fact, they have control over the means of production. They have capital, and capital gives them a lot of power. So we, the social movements, I believe, need to be very conscious about that and make the governments aware, make these institutions aware. In other words, fight to have leadership on this issue. When I say leadership, I do not mean in having governmental power, but rather about exerting hegemony over this issue, fighting for hegemony in these institutions, in these governments, from a leftist point of view, more critical of imperialism and critical of the ways capital accumulation takes place in our region. So we can't say there is a formula of how to do that, but I think that it is really important to be self-critical among ourselves, among left movements, but also encourage the self-criticism within the governments and within these institutions, because often we lose ground and these gaps between the masses, the organized people and the governments grow, which end up becoming a weakness, a weakness where the right wing can get in, which is what we should avoid at any cost especially having the United States so close to us and eager to exploit everything they can from our nations. We would be committing a grave mistake if we let ourselves believe that the only danger on the planet is the United States. We could probably do a whole episode on the role of European imperialism, but since our show is focused on this hemisphere, we're going to talk about Canada. To wit, we speak with Professor Tyler Shipley, author of Canada and the World, Settler Capitalism and the Colonial Imagination, and Ottawa and Empire, Canada and the Military Coup in Honduras. Although Canadians think that everyone else in the world adores us, that's a bit of an exaggeration. The truth is that people, especially in, in countries that have been directly affected by Canadian you know, business or, or interventions, those people don't have the same naive perception of Canada that we Canadians often do. So, you know, you speak to someone in Guatemala or Honduras about about Canada, and if they've lived anywhere near a Canadian mining operation, they don't think that Canada is some, you know, well-intentioned, friendly neighbor. They don't believe that for a second. They have experienced firsthand what Canada will do, what the Canadian states and Canadian corporations will do to exploit the land, the resources, the environment of people in other countries. So they don't have that, that sense. Now, having said that, it is also true that, you know, in part because the United States has always been such visible, obvious, imperialist, overbearing power in the world, Canada has benefited from playing up the idea that we aren't as bad. In many respects, it's, it's, Canada has a much more covert kind of imperialism, or it did. I think in the, in the present, that's changing. Uh, you know, there's big debates within the sort of uh, scholarship on Canadian imperialism, you know, whether it's a choice independently made by Canada or whether we're just holding the belief coat, as Lyndon McKay put it, just, you know, we're just doing what the U.S. tells us to do. And I think the, the truth is sort of in between those two things. Canada absolutely is making its own independent foreign policy choices and pursuing its own independent imperialist project for the benefit of uniquely Canadian capital. But having said that, 
American capital. And so it is true that Canada um, pursues foreign policy that looks very similar to what the United States is doing. But that's often because those interests are, are very carefully aligned. So, for instance, in Central America, Canada has consistently supported projects, mega projects like the PPP. And Canada has supported that without there being a direct specific benefit to Canada, but in part because by, by participating in projects of American imperialism, Canada reached the benefits and Canadian capital reached the benefits. Now, the war in Afghanistan uh, is another very good example. There are specific Canadian capitalist firms that have benefited from the war in Afghanistan. But what's much more important, I think, is that Canada signals to the United States that it is a part of the imperialist club, that it will, that it will sacrifice soldiers and equipment and whatever else to protect the broader interests of international capital led by the U.S. So in that sense, it is an independent foreign policy. It is chosen by Canada for the sake of Canada, even when it does, in fact, dovetail perfectly with the United States. You know, the Cold War has been over for, what, 25 years, at least almost 30 years. But, but that mentality has never gone away. And, of course, the concern about Venezuela is that its government has, has made moves to de-link from international capital. And so Canada is taking a strict anti-communist line, you know, in conjunction with the United States with respect to Venezuela. I think that you actually would see that throughout the Cold War period and even before that, that has consistently been Canada's approach. I mean, we could certainly talk about uh, a place like Honduras, where Canada, as soon as a popular left-leaning government, Manuel Celaya, was overthrown, Canada immediately worked to support the military government that took over. And, you know, obviously I've documented that case in all kinds of detail. And there's no question that Canada played a key role in allowing the military dictatorship to succeed and to take full control over that country. And that dictatorship has been ruling Honduras. It has been misery for Hondurans. It has been extreme. It's become an extremely dangerous country. It's become extremely difficult for working working people to, to get by, but great for Canadian capital. Canadian capital has made huge profits in Honduras as a result of that. Slightly dictatorships are always good for, for business. In some ways, Canadian imperialism can be more dangerous. Canadian politicians work to exploit the country's global image. Indeed, Canada's leading role in the Lima Group, which seeks to oust Venezuela's Maduro from power, is very much due to a deliberate effort to try to leverage Canada's public image to advance the goals of the Lima Group. But as Shipley said, any worker in the Global South who's had a chance to look at Canada's activities knows there's little truth to the country's reputation as a positive force in the world. You know, there are several examples where Canada, um, you know, doesn't necessarily directly overthrow a government, but lends support in subtle ways to the opposition forces in that country. Uh, you know, that's what Canada's been doing in Venezuela, obviously. Over many years, Canada's been supporting uh, the opposition forces there. You know, you could you could argue that that's sort of what Canada did in Honduras. I mean, it wasn't Canada that overthrew the government uh, of Manuel Zelaya. Uh, what Canada did afterwards was it said things like, hey, we just want everyone to get along here. Can everyone just be peaceful for a little while? Let's just sort this out. All these really sort of nice-sounding statements, which masked the fact that the dictatorship was killing people in the streets. And so it's very subtle. It's very subtle form of imperialism where Canada says, 
We just want everyone to be peaceful. We just want there to be peaceful resolution. Everybody, all parties, come to the table. Uh, which sounds great if you don't know what's happening, but if you know what's happening, and you know that one party is the military and it's killing people in the street, then it makes Canada's statements very disingenuous, because what Canada should have been saying was, we demand that the military stop assaulting people in the streets and, you know, bring back the democratically elected president. That's what Canada should have said. And in not saying that, you know, it's, it's the absence uh, of a strong statement against a military coup that actually was the key to the action or inaction that Canada took. So, yeah, that's the way that Canada has, has done that sort of thing. And, and, you know, in terms of, like, subtle ways that Canada has, has undermined democracy, undermined uh, economic justice in other countries, to truly understand Canadian foreign policy, I think that we have to go back to colonialism. Um, and I would argue that... Uh, the policies at the core of Canada's colonial project, the settlement of this place, right, the destruction of indigenous people, those principles remain constant in Canadian foreign policy throughout 150 years of this. Because sometimes I think we focus so much on the presence that we think that perhaps it's specific to one government. Like, oh, maybe this is Harper's fault. Maybe Trudeau will do something different. Um, or maybe this is just the mining companies, because just the mining companies are bad. But it's not. It's part of a long-standing tradition of Canadian imperialism abroad and at home. Subtle imperialism, junior imperialism, whatever you want to call it, it is something that needs to be confronted. But that is a duty that also falls to Canadians. We want to close this episode with a call to action. A brief discussion about the role that people in the U.S. and Canada must play in the anti-imperialist struggle. Once again, we hear from Álvaro García Linera. We live in a world with many problems, a very chaotic world, without a believable, accurate horizon of a shared welfare in the future and one that is marked by many injustices and by great inequality. It is a world that provides no answer, that does not give you certainty, and that generates uneasy, rejection, indignation, frustration, uncertainty about what the next day will bring. And to change that is not enough to retreat into oneself to disentangle yourself from the war, because the war will crush you. And it's not enough to retreat to your region or country, because the interdependence that has been created over the last few years tie the destiny of your country to that of other countries. The possibility of securing justice, equality in the countries where those who hear us live of finding certainty and the possibilities of warfare in the future requires that we also understand the conditions of justice in other countries and the struggles for equality in other countries. And so, to concern yourself with justice in your countries is also to concern yourself with and worry yourself with the struggle for justice that takes place in other regions of the planet and that one should also have the same commitment with others as the one in your own country. To consider that one government does in other parts of the world, it will probably also do in its own country. And also compare the results with the promises that they made, 
I think this comparison can be proven not to be a rhetorical exaggeration. How can I fight for justice in my country if I defend injustice in another country? Generally speaking, if I am defending injustices in another country, it is also because I defend injustices in my own country. Thank you for joining us for this inaugural episode of Super Exploitation and Resistance. If you like the show, please share it with your friends. We'll be producing an episode once a month. If you have feedback, please share it with us. You can reach me on social media. My handle is at Granado Ceja, that's G-R-A-N-A-D-O-S-C-E-J-A, on all social media platforms. You can also reach the show directly at superexploitationandresistance at gmail.com. We want to thank the supporters of the show, especially Common Frontiers and the Canadian Labour Movement, including the Canadian Union of Postal Workers. Special thanks to Jorge Garcia Orgales and Karen Spring for their help with voiceovers, as well as the creative team behind the operations. Guillaume Charvino Quintal with the Steelworkers Humanity Fund, Dr. Andre Gacuin from the British Columbia Teachers Federation, Michelle Munjanatu, international solidarity organizer living in New York City and expert on Latin American issues, and Pamela Arancibia, former chair of the Canadian Union of Public Employees Local 3902. Thank you for joining us, and hasta la victoria siempre. <laughs>